Hi, this is Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, where we look at God's good news for imperfect people like you and me. And today we are in episode 30, season one, on the healing of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus from the dead from John chapter 11, if you want to get ready to turn there in just a second. I do want to say thanks to everybody who participated in our supporters uh, Zoom call last week. It was definitely a lot of fun. I enjoyed being able to put faces, see faces again and reconnect with people that way. We'll definitely do that again in the fall for everyone who's a supporter. And if you'd like to become a supporter, uh, we'd encourage you to look at the, at the uh, episode notes. It'll direct you to how to do that on my Anchor uh, website. So uh, today, I also want to acknowledge that I'm going to be using a lot of the work of a guy named Ray Stedman, who is kind of one of my biblical mentors in understanding what we're looking at today. Actually, it's going to be one of the hardest problems I've ever had to face in my Christian life, we're going to be seeing today. It's what to do when God doesn't do what, you know, I've been taught to sort of expect that he's going to do, when God doesn't show up the way I thought he should, when God allows circumstances to enter my life that make me think that maybe God is asleep at the wheel. What do I do about that? What do you do about that when God doesn't act in the way that you think he should? And that's what we're going to see happen in the story of Lazarus here in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. In this episode, we're going to be looking at just the very beginning of the story, not the whole thing. Uh, We're actually going to tackle it in three parts because it's such an important story. Because apart from his own resurrection, this is probably the greatest of Jesus' miracles. The others are important, and they're also amazing. But actually, I don't think they really compare to actually defeating death. I mean, we saw water change to wine. We saw fish and bread multiplied. The first of Jesus' great miracles that involved people was in chapter 5, the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. And then the second great miracle was when Jesus opened the eyes of the man born blind in chapter 12. But now, now there's going to be the rising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And with each of these miracles, we kind of see two remarkable things happen. First, when each of these signs takes place, the response is usually many believe on Jesus. Many are convinced that he does indeed fulfill the predicted wonders of the Messiah, that he fulfills the passages in the Old Testament prophets, all the things that they predicted. But at the same time, with each of these signs, the opposition against Jesus also intensifies. The attempts to silence him grow more overt, and the momentum against him starts to gain strength. This is what happens when the gospel truly breaks forth. The Apostle Paul said so about his own preaching. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that it was an aroma of life unto life and of death unto death. Some people are going to be set free, some delivered, some healed, some brought out of bondage, uh, things that they couldn't break, they're freed, while others, unfortunately, are resentful, angry, resistant. They oppose and even fight the gospel and try every way they can to suppress the delivering of the word of truth. And I think we see that same dichotomy taking place in our world today. Attraction to Christ and antagonism against him at the very same time. So now let's begin to read chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. In these opening words to the story, John gives us just a small insight into the nature of this family of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. We don't know if he's an older or younger brother. We don't know that. But notice how John puts it this way. It's the village of Mary and her sister Martha. In Luke's account of a visit by Jesus to this home in Bethany, he says that Mary had a sister named Martha who received Jesus into her house. And it's almost depicted as Mary's village and Martha's house. That's in Luke chapter 10, 38. Kind of suggests something about these women. Traditionally, Bible teaching kind of paints the women differently. Martha is thought of as the housekeeper, as someone who loved the domestic work and had a reputation, as someone who kept a good home. She was sort of forthright and kind of a frank woman who spoke her mind, but was also full of hospitality, opened her home, was also a woman of hard work. Mary, on the other hand, was seen as more shy, more mystical, more deeply pursuing of the truth. And yet, as John tells us here about her, this is the same Mary who anointed the feet of Jesus and then wiped them with her hair, which shows her great devotion to the Lord. That incident does not take place until the next chapter. So John is kind of anticipating here with that little editorial comment because he wants us to understand which of the various Marys he's talking about. But what it indicates was this love that Mary had for Jesus. She deeply loved him and express that love in that beautiful way. Yet when these two sisters send the message to Jesus about their brother Lazarus' condition, what they stress is how much Jesus loved Lazarus. The Lord, the one you love, is sick. And what John is trying to show us is that this home in Bethany was really a love-filled home. This is the dominant theme of this whole scene, a home that is just absolutely filled with love. They loved each other. Mary Loved Jesus, Mary and Martha, or Martha loved Jesus, Lazarus loved Jesus, they all loved Jesus, and Jesus loved them back, and this was just a home filled with love. It was the uh, one of the most welcome havens for Jesus during his time of public ministry, a place where he could really rest and, and, and recover. And you know what, in a sense, this is what every home should be, a place where Jesus is welcome, a place where his love is expressed in all the various relationships and hospitality and and caring for each other. There's nothing more beautiful than the relationships within this home. And in a sense, this home is God's masterpiece. Of course, it's an ideal, and, and I'm sure they had their faults, but it's an ideal that we can strive for. The fact that their previous relationship with Jesus kind of makes then the story even more puzzling, at least at the beginning, because at this point, Jesus had left Jerusalem. Remember, he's been in a lot of conflict over the last few chapters. And by now he's gone to the Jordan River. It was about a two-day journey from the city. This is where John the Baptist had first begun his ministry and also Jesus. When the message reached Jesus, there's this remarkable response that this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. What's interesting about Jesus's response is if you check out the schedule of the timing, Lazarus was already dead by the time the message reached Jesus. It took two days for the messenger to get to the Jordan. 
So when Jesus returned to, the, to Bethany, Lazarus, they say, has already been dead four days. So it's difficult for us to believe that Jesus did not know that because of the special insight he had through the Spirit of God. But he sees this as a signal from the Father that something tremendous is going to happen in connection with Lazarus. So he sent back this remarkable word that this sickness will not end in death. But also notice the answer Jesus gives to the claim made by many, and unfortunately even today, that sickness is never the will of God for a believer. That it's absolutely wrong ever to be sick, that it is due to some kind of lack of faith or the illness represents, you know, some hidden sin or unconfessed sin or some judgment from God. Uh, you may know people who have been, who have taken that position. You know, I've connected with families where someone was seriously ill or perhaps dying and the illness was made more miserable because someone espoused this belief that the sickness was a sign of lack of faith on someone's part, either the sick person themselves or the family members or the friends or the church or whoever was praying for that person's healing. You know, it's such a horrible burden to put on others' shoulders when they're already carrying the pain of potential loss to say it's their lack of faith that is keeping the person from being healed. But notice how Jesus kind of answers that in the words. He says, this illness is for the glory of God. Now, that's unmistakable. It's for the glory of God. It was not a sign of some sin on Lazarus' part. It wasn't a sign of lack of faith on the part of Mary or Martha or even Lazarus himself. God here is using even the worst evil of this world for his own glory. God can turn the worst things towards his own glory. He, he's in the process of redeeming this broken world, and God can even redeem death. This is not saying that there's no such thing as a sickness that results from sin. I mean, other passages in the New Testament indicate that some sickness does result from sinful actions or at least, you know, things that we do ourselves. You know, we must never take the position that all illness is a sign of unbelief or a lack of faith. That's just unscriptural and so hurtful to take. But here Jesus clearly states that this illness happened and consequently it would result in the glory of God. In verses 5 and 6, we get the real shocker here. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so he heard, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. I mean, Jesus loves Lazarus, but he doesn't say, let's rush over and help him out before he dies. He does not say that, which is what is really incredible to us. It's a tough thing to believe that Jesus deliberately waited. We are so used to, you know, crit critical illness being a sig signal for immediate actions. There are going to be sirens, flashing red lights, the flurry of an emergency room. So this unhurried response seems incredible that Jesus, knowing his dear friend was ill, or in this case, now already dead after the two days, nevertheless, he stayed right, right where he was. You may well say if, if he knew Lazarus was dead, why would he hurry? There was nothing he could do. But remember Mary and Martha, their hearts were breaking. This was their dearly loved brother, maybe even a younger brother. And his death as a young man was going to be a grievous loss to them. Jesus' presence with them would have been a tremendous comfort, even though he never did a thing about raising Lazarus from the dead. Yet, knowing that they needed him, knowing that they needed his comfort, knowing that they longed to have him there, to the point that they sent a messenger to let him know the situation, 
Yet Jesus deliberately remains two days longer at the place where he was. Why? This is the question we're all going to ask at some point in life. Why? Why doesn't Jesus respond the way we think he should? Well, we ought to believe what John tells us. He says in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. This is the tough thing to handle. When you've gone to God for help, when you feel you desperately need his intervention, when your heart is breaking over something but nothing happens, the heavens are silent, there's no rescue on the horizon, this is what's so tough. I mean, has that ever happened to you? When, when that does happen, we tend to interpret God's delays as God's denials. We say, oh, he didn't answer my prayer. Prayer doesn't work. I mean, what's the use? I've tried it. Didn't happen. God let me down. What good is faith anyway? And that, friends, is just an absolutely normal reaction. I have to admit that I've reached that same, uh, reacted that same way many times in my life. But what this is telling us is that a delay in the answer like that is not a sign of God's indifference or his failure to hear. Hard as it is to believe, God's delay may be a sign of his love. The delay will in some way push us closer to Jesus. It will not ultimately hurt us. It will make us stronger. And Jesus deliberately delayed because he loved them. And he knew this would in some way strengthen their faith as they saw the ultimate outcome. Now, this is a hard, hard lesson to learn. I've struggled with this, as I said, many times myself. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who wrote about it this way. I lost the original source for this quote, so bear with me. Loneliness, loss, pain, sorrow. These are disciplines. These are God's gifts to drive us to his very heart, to increase our capacity for him, to sharpen our sensitivities and understanding, to temper our spiritual lives so that they may become channels of his mercy to others and so bear fruit for his kingdom. But these disciplines must be seized upon and used, not thwarted. They must not be seen as excuses for living in the shadows of half-lives, but as messengers, however painful, to bring our souls into vital contact with the living God, that our lives may be filled to overflowing with himself in ways that may perhaps be impossible to those who know less of life's darkness. Now, I don't like that quote. I think of the reaction in Bethany as the messenger returned with the news that when he told Jesus Lazarus was ill, Jesus said, this illness won't end in death. Yet when the messenger got back with that message, Lazarus had already been dead. So what do you think the reaction of the sisters was going to be? I mean, how do you think they felt? Not only would there be heartache caused by the loss of their brother, but also a tremendous doubt as to the power and compassion of Jesus, because obviously Jesus was mistaken. The illness had already resulted in death. So they would have doubted his capacity or his ability or his compassion. It must have clouded their minds and pushed them, I think, probably closer to despair. But then in two days later, Jesus acts. And this time, it's the disciples' turn to be surprised in verse 7. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you're going back. And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will, st will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Well, here Jesus is just using the common expressions of his day, these proverbs that were 
common and kind of life situations, you know, that uh, he goes on in verse 11. He says, he says, you tell him, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking about his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then Thomas, who was known as Didymus, or the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us go, also go, that we may die with him. So in these verses, we have this deliberate contrast drawn between two views of sort of danger and death. Here the disciples, they're baffled by our Lord's actions. They've just left Judea, probably a week or so before, escaping the city of Jerusalem because of the fear that Jesus' enemies were about to put him to death. They must have felt a sense of relief to get out of the city with all its intrigue and danger. When any moment, all of them could have been dragged before the authorities and killed. They, they knew that the enemies of Jesus were out for blood. So for Jesus to leave, it must have relieved them. They must have seen it as a prudent action to avoid, you know, even worse conflict. But now Jesus turns around and says, let's go back. And that totally baffles them. Have you noticed how many times in the Gospels when Jesus completely confuses his disciples, they don't understand his actions at all. And that's so good for me to see. Because, and for us to see, because we will all go through these hard moments when God does things that we do not understand, we can't figure it out, when circumstances are really beyond us. And God's response even baffles us or even discourages us. Yet what this reveals is how little we understand, that it's God who is the realist. He never deceives himself. He always acts in perfect accord with what the situation demands. He does not suffer from illusions and fantasies like we do. does not pursue hopeless aims like we do. He acts in line with his reality. And this reveals something wonderful about the way God thinks. That first of all, his word here reveals that when he left Judea, it was not because of fear. He had left because, if he had left because of fear, he'd never be going back. Because conditions were even worse now. So why then did he leave? It was clearly, clearly a question of timing. And Jesus himself was in charge of the events that led to his death. And several times he said, my time has not yet come. He is orchestrating this whole procedure. He removes himself from the scene because his presence was stirring up antagonism before his time was right. Jesus knew that God had appointed an hour when he would die. He knew that hour was to be at the Passover celebration, the great feast of Israel, when he would become the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world for the sins of the world. That's Revelation 13, 8. He was moving the opposition, kind of stimulating them by his presence, at times to greater opposition and then moving away for a while before coming back again, kind of keeping the fire hot but not blowing up. Therefore, it's clear that it's not fear that drives Jesus or motivates him. It's just this question of timing. What does Jesus mean when he says, are there not 12 hours in the day for work? I mean, again, he's referring to the appointed time of God. Remember, there's no Timex watches in Jesus's day, no Rolexes, no Apple watches. The only way they had to time, tell time was a sundial, and a sundial only has 12 numbers on it. Not that there are only 12 hours in a day. We know that there are 24, and so did Jesus, but only 12 hours to work. Because it takes two revolutions around the sundial to record a day, but you know what? You can't use a sundial at night. No sun, no shadow to track it. 
So 12 hours, because figuratively, that's basically all we have in a day to be awake or to work uh, like we usually do. But there are 12 hours appointed for activity. And this is just kind of a symbol or metaphor Jesus applies to every one of us, that God has appointed a time for each of us. And if we are walking in the light, doing what he sent us to do, there's nothing that can shorten that time and nothing we can do to lengthen it. It's an appointed time for each of us. Scripture everywhere says this, that our times are in his hands. Psalm 31, 15. Or help us so to number our days that we might seek the Lord in ways that please him. Psalm 90, verse 12. When Jesus says there are 12 hours in the day, he's saying, it's true of me. I'm walking in God's appointed time. I have nothing to fear. The only danger I have is if I were to walk out of the light. Because he says, he who walks in the darkness stumbles. So it's possible to live a shorter life than you might have if you could be obedient to God. You can shorten your life by disobedience, by walking in disregard to what God has sent you to do and to be. Remember the first promise of the Bible in connection with that? Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. That's Exodus 20:12. There's kind of an implication here that if you fail to learn the lesson of the past that you come to from those who have lived before you, that you can actually shorten your time on earth. He that walks in the light does not need to fear, but he who walks in darkness stumbles because the light is not in him. Verses 11 through 16, we have the view of Jesus and this contrasting views of the disciples also on death. Notice the loyal unbelief of Thomas. Notice what Jesus is saying here. When we stand beside a loved one's grave and our heart cries out, why? Heaven's answer is, is really what? I mean, what is death? We're the ones who say death is a final farewell, a leap into the darkness, a mystery, a silence, leaving us lonely and grieving. But Jesus says, no, it's just a sleep. Peter Marshall, who was once chaplain in the United States Senate uh, for many years, he told the story, I don't know if it was true or not, but he told the story of a boy of 12 who knew he was dying. And the boy asks his father, what is it like to die? And his father said, son, do you remember when you were little, how you used to come and sit on my lap in the big chair in the living room? I would tell you a story read you a book or sing you a song, and you would fall asleep in my arms. And when you woke, you woke up in your own bed. That is the way death is. When you wake up, you are not where you were. You are in a place of security and safety and beauty and rest in God's presence. That, Jesus declares, is what death is. All through the account of the Gospels, we get this, so that even the apostles pick up on it later and say, in verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, not John eleven fourteen. Notice again that Jesus says he was glad he was not there when, Le when Lazarus died. For the sake of the disciples, he delayed his going for Mary and Martha's sake, but also for his disciples' sake, in order that their faith might be strengthened by that delay. Though nobody understood it, though they must have been filled with doubt and questions because of it, it was going to be better for Mary and Martha and the disciples for him to wait, though the anxious hours until God would do uh, his, his, what he wanted to do and do his full and complete work in bringing Lazarus back to life. 
This is what he says to us too. As he said to these disciples, it's better for your sake that I did not go. For your sake, I did not go. This is the true lesson of these opening verses in John 11. I just think we all need to know there are going to be times when we cry out to God for help and say, things are so bad, it can't get any worse, Lord. Do something, help us. And no answer will immediately come. And that's very hard. It's hard to keep on believing. It's hard to wait. But that is never, never the end of the story. And gradually we learn what God said so clearly through the prophets. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. Isaiah 55, 8. This is what is so difficult. God is sovereign. It's not a person that he's going to act like we act. There are dimensions to the problems of life which he sees that we can't remotely imagine. There are possibilities, maybe opportunities in every situation that we can't conceive of. And so we must wait and quietly trust, knowing that he's working his will out. Now, everybody there must have thought Jesus is just wrong. He said this illness is not unto death and Lazarus is dead. But Jesus was right, as we'll go on and see next time. There are times when my faith isn't any better than Thomas's or anybody else's here. But Thomas says, let us go too so that we can die with him. This kind of glum and hopeless here. He's not really understanding much about Jesus's power. It's kind of just clinging to the end saying, you know, I, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to stop being a Christian. I don't understand it. I don't think anything good is going to come out of it, but I'm going to stick with Jesus. That's the bet I made, and I'm sticking with him. So with Thomas, there's a commitment that is ad admirable. There are going to be times when it's hard to stick with Jesus, times when we realize God is not going to work out according to the logic of the situation as we understand it. There's an incredible arrogance to the human mind, including my own, that thinks it knows more than the almighty, infinite mind of God. But everywhere scripture drives us back to this, believe his word, trust his word. It will not fail. It will not leave us in the lurch in the end. We cannot understand the delays, but we must never question God's ways or lose faith in his word. And so we say, thank you, our father, for this incident that finds us right there in the same place so many times. Thank you, Lord, for your word that can strengthen our faith, that makes us trust you and not to lean on our own understanding. Deliver us from that, Lord. Make us to be godly men and women who walk in the light that we may not stumble. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. <laughs>